Good morning. Welcome to my office. Welcome to church. Let's pray. God, again, as we enter into your word, as we enter into this time together, as we continue our discussion on stewardship, on what it looks like to live a life that we recognize has been given to us by you, um, and how that works in every area of our lives, be it our money, be it our time, be it our gifts, what are you calling us to? What are you calling us to hold with open hands? What are you calling us to change about the way we live our lives in light of the gift that you have given us uh, and the responsibilities that you have given us? In your name, amen. So we are talking about stewardship. We started last week talking a little bit about money. Uh, and the stewardship of money that I think for many of us when we hear the word stewardship is the first thing that we think of. We looked at a passage in Luke where Jesus talks about stewardship. He in fact talks about an actual steward in a parable. And the guy wasn't a great guy necessarily, um, didn't seem to be a very good steward in general, but he understood how to use his money in order to win friends. And Jesus says that's what we're called to do. We're called to use this money which isn't ours, which we are stewards of on God's behalf, to win friends for ourselves, to build up eternal friendships, and uh, to use our money generously to show love to the people around us, to use our money to, in all of these things, build up the kingdom of God. Uh, we've been called to be radically generous people. But of course, that applies to much more than just our money. It's entirely possible to be generous with your wallet and not with your heart. But if you're generous with your heart, you're going to be generous with your wallet, and you're also going to find that generosity creeping into other parts of your life. One of the points I made last week was that giving financially actually is a, a key piece. It's an important piece of how we as members of the church show our membership, how we transition from being people who attend a service in order to get something out of it, who look at church as a program, uh, to take from or something that they can sort of receive benefit from and transition into being active members of a body, of being a part of something, not going to church, but in fact being the church. And that's also true for more than just money. When we look at how we spend our time, how we use our giftedness, um, how we uh, use our energies in life, a part of being the church means that we are using what God has given us in order to build his kingdom in this specific way. Our community covenant, which uh, many of you have signed over the years, this document of what we believe that God is calling us to as a community here at Pleasant Valley speaks clearly for our need not just to be ministered to, but also to be ministers ourselves, to be a part of the ministry of our church. And so today we want to look at this other piece of stewardship. Certainly, even though it's not financially, we can look at this as something that brings huge value to the world around us, to those around us. And today we're going to be looking at how to be stewards of our time and our giftedness. Actually, this sermon ended up traveling in a little bit of a different direction than I was planning. Uh, I thought that maybe what it would be is a bit more of a practical look on how to get plugged in and how to use our gifts. And I'd like to look at that sometime. I would like to take 
a bit of a deeper dive into practically what does it look like to serve at Pleasant Valley? How can you get plugged in to what we are doing here? How can you use your gifts and, and look at it from a bit more of a an immediate aspect where we're kind of looking at the tangible, practical pieces of serving here in our context. But this ended up zooming out a little bit to a bigger picture of what is our theological understanding of our call to serve? What does it mean uh, to serve? The importance of that in our lives. And, and so obviously, if we absorb those truths, if we take what we'll be talking about today um, and apply that to our hearts, what that's going to do is it will trickle down into practical service in our church and in our community. Uh, but today is kind of that zoomed out theological picture, and maybe we'll do a series in the future on on sort of more practically what does it mean to be involved in everyday service and how can we do that and what are ideas for how we can glorify God in the way we use our time and in the way we use our giftedness. Today though we are going to be digging into Luke again. So this is actually just a few pages over from the previous parable that we read. This is a series of conversations and interactions that Jesus has with his disciples and with others. Uh, so we'll be looking uh, in Luke chapter 9. We're going to start at verse 49 and then we're going to work our way just a little bit into chapter 10. Um, I think it's up to Luke 10 uh, verse 2. But what I'll do is read this passage in its entirety. There's a lot of difficult things in this passage. It's another piece of text that is maybe difficult right at the surface to see what's being gotten at. There's, there's some... Uh, um, tricky things. There's some cultural things going on here as well. And so what I want to do is take a look at the passage as a whole at the beginning, and then we can drill down into some of these statements and some of these things in order to get a bit more clarity on what exactly uh, Jesus was getting at and what Luke was getting at uh, in sort of assembling these things in the way they were assembled. So first I'm going to read the passage in its entirety. This is from Luke chapter 9, and we're going to start, like I said, at verse 49. So here, let's see. Master, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he is not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said, for whoever is not against you is for you. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem and he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples James and John saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. Then he and his disciples went to another village. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He said to another man, Follow me. But he replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, Let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. He told them, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. 
All right. What we're going to do here, I think, is we're going to work our way backwards through this passage. We're going to follow uh, Luke's building a bit of an argument here, or he's building something uh, through this passage, and we're going to walk it back in the opposite direction. Uh, his point at the end, the thing that he's driving towards, I'm going to argue here, is that all of us are called to serve. Well, how do we do that? How, how, can we, how can we serve? How can we live a life of service? And he answers that just before, in the middle. Uh, we're called, I'm going to say he's arguing there, to be fully focused on Jesus. Well, how can we possibly fully focus on Jesus? And Luke answers that at the beginning of our chapter today. We can trust Jesus when we understand who he is and what he has done for us. So maybe you're thinking back to some of the stuff that I just read, and you're wondering how exactly I'm going to get those points out of what we talked about. But I think they're in there. And if we take a little bit of a look together at this, I think with a little bit of context, you'll see it too. And we'll recognize the way that Luke is sort of structuring this passage. But what we're going to do is we're going to start building this pyramid sort of from the top and then work our way down, which is probably not generally how it's recommended to build pyramids. But I think for us today, it's going to work well. So let's start at the end. Chapter 10, uh, verses 1 and 2. It said this, After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. He told them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. So we have these 72 that are sent. And actually, this passage here, it very closely mirrors the beginning of chapter 9, which is another commissioning, another sending that Jesus does. I didn't read that part earlier. It's before our passage that we're looking at. But if you go back to the first part of chapter 9, the first two verses there... They read, when Jesus had called the twelve together, that is the apostles, he gave them power and authority to drive out demons, to cure diseases, and he sent them to proclaim the kingdom of God and heal the sick. So Jesus sends out the twelve apostles to do these three things, to proclaim the gospel, to drive out demons, to heal the sick. And if you read further in chapter 10, you'll see that's exactly what Jesus is now appointing these 72 to do. It's exactly the same role that he is calling them to, to preach the gospel, to heal the sick, and to cast out demons. And that 72, it's a specific number. It's a very significant number that Luke chose there, uh, or that Jesus chose. It's a number that holds a lot of importance to the writers of the Bible. Uh, and this one was chosen for a reason. In the Greek Old Testament, the one that many uh, Christians or Jews will have been reading at that time. Uh, in Genesis chapter 10, after Noah, the story of Noah, what it does is it lists the what's called the table of nations. It lists all of the nations kind of flowing out of Noah and his sons. And it sort of represents the entire population of the earth. And there are 72 nations that are listed. And so when the number 72 comes up through scripture, it's a number that symbolizes completeness and wholeness. It's everybody, all of us. And so Jesus first sends out the apostles. He sends out clergy or, or professionals to do this work. Uh, but then later, what happens is he sends out the 72. He sends out all Christians, the whole church, to do that same thing. Um, and, and that word sent is important. The, in Greek, that word is missio. That's where we get our word mission from. It's all of our missions, Luke is saying here, to preach the gospel, to care for the hurting, and to cast out demons. And without 
getting into my theology of the demonic uh, too deeply here. I will say this. I do believe that demons are real, literal, personal beings. But I also believe that we are called in a more general sense to free people from less literal demons. We can be enslaved and we can be captive to all sorts of things. We can end up addicted to all sorts of things. We can end up worshipping or idolizing or making gods out of all sorts of things. And a part of our calling as Christians is to be ministers of freedom. To walk alongside the hurting and the struggling and also to lovingly hold accountable uh, our neighbors and our brothers and sisters in Christ. But what's clear here is that there is something for all of us, each of us who are Christians. Uh, and this idea of a priesthood of all believers, um, this sending that Jesus gives for us here as the 72, it's one of the key pillars of our sort of corner of faith here. The, the Anabaptist Mennonite movement was really built on, on the idea that all of us are called to be active in our mission, in our sending, um, to live our lives in this way that Jesus is calling here. Further to this, Paul talks beautifully in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, about the fact that we're God's uh, handiwork, we're God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And, and that word workmanship, it's a beautiful word in Greek, uh, poema, which is the word from which we get poem. We are works of art. We are specific. We are unique. We're carefully created. And we've been created in Christ Jesus for the purpose of doing good works, of accomplishing this calling. Now, not all of us are going to be preachers. Not all of you are going to give a Sunday morning sermon, but every single one of us, according to Jesus's words here in Luke uh, and Paul's words in Ephesians, uh, have specific situations in our lives where we can speak the gospel um, into situations with, with an artistry and with a clarity and with a purpose that nobody else can. There are situations where you can provide care. There are situations where you can bring freedom that you are uniquely suited for. Your journeys allow you to hold the hands, to listen and understand, to connect with or to show love with specific people in specific contexts that nobody else can do in the same way. And that's such a beautiful contrast to what the world tells us. The world says you don't have a reason, you don't have a purpose, you're here by accident, it's pure chance, you've kind of been thrown into this, good luck, make the best of it. God says you haven't been thrown in, you've been sent. You are my handiwork. You have a purpose and a value and a calling that is uniquely your own, both individually and as a part of this larger collective. And that is an important part of the church. It's an important part of what we want to be at Pleasant Valley, uh, is, is that we want to be a place that enables you and empowers you to find those places to connect your giftedness to the larger community. And maybe this is a good time for a question. We're not always good at uh, speaking positively about ourselves. It can be uncomfortable. It can feel prideful. It can feel boastful. But honestly acknowledging the giftedness that you have, the ways the Holy Spirit has worked in your life, what you think God has called you to, what you think God has gifted you in, that's a God-honoring thing for sure. So what I want to ask here is simple. In what ways do you feel that you have been gifted to serve the church? 
what I'll do just to kind of prime the pump here a little bit is just run through a few of the gifts that are mentioned in Scripture, um, gifts that are given to us by the Holy Spirit. Uh, so I'll list a few of those, but of course there's much more than this. There's variations of this. Uh, there's specific roles that you can think of even within Pleasant Valley that you could talk about as well. But but here are some general terms that we get from Scripture in terms of ways that God has gifted us. Administration, discernment, evangelism, encouragement, faith, giving, healing, helping, hospitality, knowledge, mercy, prophecy, serving, leadership, speaking in tongues, teaching, wisdom, and there are many, many more. There are many variations of these things. But how has God equipped you to be a part of fulfilling this sending? How has he written your poem? How has he crafted you to contribute? Again, for some of you, um, for some of us, this is going to be a very personal question. You don't have to write anything in the chat, but I want you to take a moment to prayerfully consider this. How has God equipped you to be a part of fulfilling this sending call that we have been given here? So, I hope you had a chance to process, to ask that question of yourself. What is God calling you to? What has he gifted you to in a unique way uh, to serve the church, both here in Pleasant Valley and in the larger context? But that is the top of the pyramid. That's what Luke is driving towards in this as he's put this chapter, this section together. Uh, he is heading towards this punchline, which is we are created to serve. We are created and, and as well we are sent by Jesus with the mission of service, with the mission of serving the people around us and glorifying God as we go that's what our purpose is but how do we accomplish that that's a big big ask of us it's something that can feel overwhelming so how can we begin to have a heart of service and what we're going to do is move back a step to look at the middle of this passage jesus has conversations with three different people and he does something which, uh, on the one hand, is surprising here, but on the other hand, we see him do it over and over again in Scripture when people approach him, which is these men all want to jump on board, all want to be a part of this train. And Jesus says, hold up a second. You need to consider something here. He gives them a challenge. Instead of just accepting them in and going, welcome, great, yeah, happy to have you. He says, no, 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 here's something that you need to be thinking about. So... Uh, starting in verse 57, we see these three encounters. The first one is this. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Here's a guy that says, I want to follow you. And Jesus says, whoa, 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 you're coming in too fast. You haven't thought this through. Jesus says, understand what you're getting yourself into here. I am not going up to riches and glory. I'm going down. I'm not going towards uh, prestige and power and honor. I'm going towards ultimate uh, humility. I'm not going to save the world by winning. I'm going to save the world by dying. Um, that statement, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He's saying, your life is going to get harder, not easier. Even foxes, even birds have homes. You're not even going to have a home. This way, 
with me, there is going to be sacrifice, there is going to be difficulty, there is going to be the loss of many things. Are you really ready to take that step? Is that really who you want to follow or where you want to go? And then the next two uh, fit into a different category. The first one uh, that we just looked at, he says, slow down, you're coming in too fast. And in the second two, in different ways, he says, you got to pick it up, you're too hesitant. He says to another man, follow me. But the man replies, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. So what is he getting at here? Um, Both of these people have the same issue. The issue is family. The core of this is a family thing. The first man wanted to do his father's funeral, and the second is wanting to go say goodbye to his family, which seems reasonable to me. Uh, but it's important to understand the context here. This was, Jesus' time was uh, a highly, highly patriarchal, family-based society. Family meant everything. Family honor meant everything. Parental approval maybe meant more than everything. If, if your family and your parents, your father is happy with you, then life is good. Uh, if they're disappointed with you, it's the end of the world. And Jesus is saying something shocking here, which is, you want to follow me, but I perceive that you've got something ahead of me in your heart. Both of them use the same word here. First, first, let me go and bury my father. The other says, first, let me go back and say goodbye to my family. And Jesus says, I need to be first. So often we can say, yes, but, yes, if, I'll follow you if, I'll follow you as long as. And what Jesus says is that whatever comes after that if, whatever comes after the but, that's actually your first priority. In other words, you're not actually going to follow me. The real master is something else. Let's take a closer look quickly at these examples before we move on. When Jesus talks about putting a hand to the plow uh, and looking back, um, that's something I think that we can understand a little bit here. Farming at that time, when they were out in their fields, they had to pay complete and total attention to what was going on. They didn't have GPS built into their farm animals, their horses or their oxen. Uh, So first of all, they had to pay attention because they didn't want to go off course. They didn't want to mess up their rows um, and have inefficient uh, inefficient planting. The second was this, if they weren't paying attention, they could hit a rock. There were rocks in the fields. And uh, if they hit a rock, they could very easily break their plow. And that would have been devastating for a, for a local farmer, poor farmer, uh, to break their plow. That would have been a huge, huge uh, disaster. So Jesus is speaking in this way, this sort of common common way that people would understand. Everyone knows you don't look back while you're plowing. You have to look forward. You have to focus on what's in front of you. The second example is is, uh, more colorful and maybe a little harder to understand. Let the dead bury the dead, Jesus says. Now, obviously, it doesn't work that way. Dead can't bury the dead. Uh, But Jesus here, uh, I don't think, was talking about a physical death. More he was talking about a spiritual death. So just like someone who has passed away has no awareness of what's going on around them. Dead people don't know if it's night or day or hot or cold or up or down. Uh, So a spiritually dead person doesn't have spiritual awareness. Jesus is saying, look around you. And if you don't understand the spiritual truth of what is happening here, 
then you're dead inside. May as well go to the funeral. But if you're spiritually alive, you're going to understand the right order of things. And you're going to understand that I need to be first in your life. Darren has often talked about uh, the universe, the size of stars and our galaxy and, and the view that that gives us of God. It's, it's incredible when you try to start and perceive the scale of these things. And I'll give you one more sort of angle or way of thinking about the scale of our universe. So there is 92 million miles between the earth and the sun. 92 million miles. Uh, and if you said that the scale of that is the thickness, the edge thickness of one piece of paper, that's the earth to the sun, then the next nearest star would be a stack of paper 70 feet high. And more than that, the, the, the Milky Way galaxy that we're a part of from one end to the other would be a stack of paper that would stretch 310 miles. That would stretch from here to the, uh, to the Saskatchewan border and beyond. Now, the Milky Way galaxy is just a speck of dust in the context of the entire universe. And so you begin to sort of understand the scale of this thing, the incredible power of the universe itself. And then the Bible says that Jesus holds all of that together with the word of his power. It's, it's, it's nothing for him. And that begins to make you question. It makes me question. Uh, is that the kind of person that I'm asking to be my assistant? What kind of a place should someone like that hold in my life? If they're saying they want a personal relationship with me, if they're calling me to follow them. When we truly understand who Jesus is, when we're spiritually alive, our priorities are going to be in the right order. And any time that we start to add qualifying statements to our faith, I'll believe if, I'll follow but, I'll believe but first, that is a sign of, of spiritual deadness starting to creep in. Some of you have heard this story before. Uh, years ago, I was working at Friesen's uh, in their packaging division. I was an admin there, but we were doing year-end year inventory checks, um, getting the system all reconciled. And so then everyone, including office staff, was going through racks and racks of materials and, and digging through these old stacks of paper and cardboard and doing counts and taking notes. And we were touching pallets and, and, and stacks of materials that hadn't been touched um, in a very long time. Some of these things just got touched once a year whenever we were doing these counts. And, and there was dust everywhere. And an hour or two in to the morning, I noticed a weird rash on my hands. I'd never had anything like it. It started on my fingers and then it began to work its way down to my wrist and then up my arm. It's very strange, you know, these little raised bumps. And I'd never had a reaction like that before. I'd never had anything like that happen to me. And so I decided to be safe. I'd better call health links just to make sure it wasn't some weird contagious thing. Uh, and, and so I described my symptoms to her and then something in my answers triggered something in her system on her end. Some kind of uh, a silent alarm went off over there and the tone immediately changed. Suddenly this wasn't a routine line of questions anymore. It was an impending crisis. She said, I needed to immediately check if the rash was anywhere else on me. She said, get into the nearest bathroom, strip down, check everywhere. And, and so I did that, which was a whole thing. And then she said, I have to get to the hospital right away. And I was not to drive myself, but I was feeling fine. And the emergency room was just a couple of blocks away. So I said, no, no, I'll get myself there. 
And, uh, and she fought with me for a little bit on that, but eventually she said, okay, if you're driving yourself, if you experience any of these symptoms, you have to immediately pull over and call an ambulance. And it was this long list of complicated symptoms, including things like uh, an impending sense of doom. And, and there was all these things that I was supposed to watch out for. And I showed up at emergency and I walked in and I told the nurse what the lady on the phone at Health Things had told me, which is that they were concerned that I may have necrotizing fasciitis or flesh eating disease. And the nurse's eyes got wide and they immediately whisked me off to a quarantined room where I sat alone. And within a few minutes, a doctor came in in like full biohazard gear, ready to take a look. And he got close to me and he looked at my hand and then he smirked and he said, yeah, that looks like an allergic reaction to dust. Here's an ointment. It'll probably go away in a couple of days. The reason I tell you that story is this. It's a big deal when something on you is dying. If you have a limb with necrotizing fasciitis, every moment counts. You chop off that limb without asking another question, lest it get to your core or your torso or your internal organs. Had, had things gone another way, I could have been a walking physical example of if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it into the fire. And spiritually, when we start to put ifs and buts and but firsts in front of our commitment to follow Jesus, it's a warning sign. It's a symptom that should put us on high alert. It should prompt us into swift action to correct whatever is beginning to go wrong in us. It's a dangerous road to walk down. So we are called to serve others, to be generous with our gifts and with our time. And we are called to give ourselves away to others. And we can do that because we first give ourselves away to Christ, because we follow Christ completely. We can do that because we put Christ first in our lives, because we're spiritually alive. But what will allow us to be spiritually alive, to be truly generous to Christ? Well, we go back to the first part of this passage and we see that it's by understanding who Jesus is and what he came to do. There are two different stories here in this first piece. Um, I'm going to go quick through the first one because we're running out of time. Uh, John tells Jesus, he says, we saw someone driving out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he's not one of us. And it's fascinating. It's, it's a bit of a strange thing here. Several times throughout scripture, Jesus talks about casting out demons. And generally, he says things like that you can't cast out demons except by prayer, by trust in me. And, and so anyone that is driving out demons in Jesus' name is clearly doing something good and right. So what's John's issue? Why is he concerned here? Well, I think the issue is he's not one of us. He's not in our club. He's not in our denomination. He's not in our group. We don't have control over that. And Jesus says, stop it. Don't stop him. He's doing good work. Stop thinking this way. Whoever's not against you is for you. It's a lack of generous spirit, right? It's a lack of generosity, a lack of openness, a lack of love to the people around you. What a powerful thing for us to be generous with those outside of our little circle, with those outside of our group. When we interact in our community, when we meet with those who think a little different, when we hear the successes of those who are outside of our group, 
who believe different things. Let's have generous spirits about that. But verse 51 is where it really escalates. Jesus sends messengers ahead to arrange for staying in a Samaritan village. Uh, and for whatever reason, because they're headed on through to Jerusalem and that didn't agree with these Samaritans, they say, no, you can't stay here. And the disciples are furious. Uh, we already know that they're concerned about their honor, uh, but they're furious about this. And James and John ask, they say, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? Now, that seems like a bit of an overreaction. But we can understand maybe why James and John were thinking this way by looking a little bit earlier in Luke chapter 9. Uh, earlier in the chapter, again, before our passage here, John and James, along with Peter, went up with Jesus on the side of a mountain and witnessed uh, what we refer to as the transfiguration. They go up on a mountain with Jesus and they see clearly the glory of God in him. His humanity sort of fades away and the glory of God in him is revealed uh, and, and he becomes bright as lightning. His clothes are shining. And then along with him, two figures show up, Elijah and Moses. And this represents that Jesus is the, the fulfillment of these two figures. He is redeemer and rescuer like Moses, but he's the perfect Moses. And he's a prophet like Elijah, but he is the perfect prophet. And both Moses and Elijah have experience uh, with fire from heaven. In 2 Kings, uh, Elijah is up on this hill. This is right at the beginning of 2 Kings. And the king in Samaria there, they are not getting along, Elijah and him. So this king sends 50 men to go and capture Elijah. And these men say, the captain says, man of God, the king says, come down. And Elijah answers, if I'm a man of God, may fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50 men. Then fire fell from heaven and consumed the captain and their men. And then it happens again. Another 50 men are sent. And again, the captain says, man of God, this is what the king says, come down at once. If I am a man of God, Elijah says, may fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50 men. Then the fire of God fell from heaven and consumed him and his 50 men. And this story will have been looming large in James and John's mind. If Elijah called down fire when he was insulted, when he was told by people around him to do something that he didn't want to do. And Jesus is the ultimate prophet, better than Elijah. Then how much more should this dishonor be met with fire from heaven? It came out of a confidence of, of understanding now uh, in a new way who they were serving, the lordship of Christ in front of them. And so they asked Jesus, should we call down fire from heaven? And Jesus doesn't just say no, he actually the word is rebukes them. The closest translation or way of thinking it would be, he goes, no, shut up, you jerks. It's, it's kind of harsh language. And then he just walks away. And these guys have to sheepishly follow him. So what's the difference? What's the difference between Jesus and his disciples? What's the difference between Jesus, the perfect Elijah, and the old Elijah, the ultimate Elijah, and this older one? Here's the difference. Jesus did come to bring the fire of God. He says that a little later in Luke. In Luke 12, uh, verse 49, he says, I have come to bring fire on this earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to undergo, and what constraint am I, I am under until it is completed. This sort of a sentence structure that Jesus is using here was a very common one in that time where you sort of stack two statements up next to each other in order to clarify and explain, bring added meaning 
and add an emphasis to that statement. So the two things mean the same thing. They're just said a little bit differently in order to give a little bit more clarity. So what's the fire that he's talking about? It's the same as the baptism that he's waiting for. Of course, Jesus has already been baptized at this point. That happened at the beginning of his ministry. So what then is he referring to? When the soldiers came for Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, what did he do? Elijah, when confronted by soldiers, wanted to capture him. He rained down fire. What did Jesus do? When a fight breaks out and one of them has their ear cut off, Jesus heals the ear. When the soldiers are putting Jesus on the cross, he says, Father, forgive them. It's almost the exact opposite of Elijah. Why? Because Jesus came not to bring judgment, but to bear it through an act of atonement, uh, at one bring together God and man to allow us to be in proper relationship, to heal instead of to divide, um, to restore instead of hurt. If we go through life with a list of things that we need to do, we have to be unselfish, we have to be servants, we need to be generous with our time, we need to be generous with our gifts, we're never going to be able to do it. But when we receive the Holy Spirit, when we are filled by the one who died for us, that's what enables us to do these things. In conclusion, being a disciple of Jesus, it's a radical thing. Nothing more subversive. Uh, Jesus could have said nothing more subversive to those men uh, in that society than saying, I need to be ahead of your family. Forget your father. Forget your family. You need to follow me. Jesus is calling us to radical discipleship, to follow him in a way that puts him truly first in our lives. And he's big enough to deserve that. But it's also gentle. Our calling is gentle. Jesus' followers don't call down fire on people. It's not about you people. It's not about the other anymore. It's about restoration. It's about healing. It's about love. The world is full of people calling down fire on each other. We see that every day in the news, social media. We are called to be healers. And we can also trust the way that Jesus calls us. It's an incredible thing that I, I, I see here in this passage is that he knows what we need. It's, it's, it's an amazing thing, looking at the story. With one of the men, he says, so, slow down, you need to think about this. With another two, he says, you're not going far enough. You need to speed up. You've got to get going on this. Jesus understands where we're at. He knows our hearts. He understands when you need a good kick in the pants. He understands when you need support, when you need an arm around your shoulder. It's not about guilt or shame. It's not about not doing enough. It's about trusting in the one who has built us to serve and to love, looking to him for guidance and for comfort. It's about existing together as a body. It's about putting Jesus first in all things in our lives. And then out of that, it's about accepting our calling as one of the 72 to go and to preach the gospel and to cure the sick, to cast out demons. Amen.